This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is diversified and lifelong learning. In the first half, we'll hear David Epstein's BYU Forum address, The Path of Most Resistance, How to Learn for a Changing World. Then in the second half, Elder David A. Bednar gives his commencement speech entitled, Learning to Love Learning. Uh, it's really an honor to, to be here. Of course, I wish I were there with you all in, in person, but I think learning how to do this is, is part of what it means to be educated in the world we're in right now. And I'm really honored to be here, particularly to speak uh, under the theme of what it means to be educated. And I want to address that on, on multiple levels. And I want to start with sort of the personal level, the personal development level, getting educated about ourselves and where we fit. And I want to start with what has been probably the most impactful modern story of development. It starts with this guy, Tiger Woods. Father famously bought him a putter when he was seven months old. At 10 months, he started imitating his father's swing. At two years old, you can go and see him on YouTube showing off his swing on national television. By three, he's saying, I'm going to be the next great golfer. I'm going to be the next Jack Nicholas." by three years old. He's famous as a teenager. And fast forward to age 21, he's the greatest golfer in the world. It's kind of that quintessential 10,000 hours story, or scientists actually call that the deliberate practice framework. Another one that's featured in a number of best-selling books is that of the three Polgar sisters. This is kind of like the real life Queen's Gambit, if, if you watch that show in, in certain ways. This is Laszlo Polgar with his three daughters, who he decided he would teach them chess in a very specialized, technical manner from a very early age. And really what he wanted to do was to show that with a head start in deliberate practice, any child could become a genius in anything. And in fact, two of his daughters went on to become grandmaster chess players. So when I left my track where I was training to be a scientist in in my past life um, and became the science writer at Sports Illustrated, I got curious. I said, well, if this incredibly influential work, this 10,000 hours rule holds in our field, then we should see that athletes who are elite spend more time in that so-called deliberate practice. Now, this is not playing around or experimenting. This is effortful, cognitively engaged, error correction focused practice. We should see that they spend more time in that kind of practice. And in fact, when scientists study athletes, they see that elites spend more time in deliberate practice, not a huge surprise. But when they actually track the athletes over the course of their development, the pattern looks like this. The future elites actually spend less time early on in deliberate practice in the sport in which they will become elite. There's a lot of individual variation, but they tend to have what scientists call a sampling period, where they do a variety of activities. That could be other sports. It could be dance, rock climbing, martial arts, whatever. They gain these broad general physical skills that scaffold later technical skills. They learn about their own interests. They learn about their own abilities. And they systematically delay specializing until later than peers who plateau at lower levels. That was not what I had expected to see. That doesn't really comport with this 10,000 hours rule. So then I got curious about other domains that we associate with obligatory early specialization. The next one that came to mind was music. This is research from world-class music academies. And what I want to draw your attention to is this. The musicians deemed exceptional by their instructors didn't start spending more time in that deliberate practice than those deemed average until their third instrument. They too tended to have a sampling period. Even musicians we think of as famously precocious, like Yo-Yo Ma, went through this period where they sampled different instruments, did a lot of self-directed activity before focusing in. But this research is almost totally ignored by the public. 
Much more influential is the first page of the book, Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother, in which the author recounts assigning her daughter violin and having her do five, six hours of deliberate practice a day. Now, the part that doesn't seem to have stuck in the public consciousness is the part later in the book where her daughter turns to her and says, you picked it, not me, and quits. Right? We seem to have kind of forgotten about that part. But seeing this pattern, this surprising pattern again in another domain that I thought required early specialization made me curious about domains that affect even more people, like higher education. An economist found a natural experiment in the higher ed systems of England and Scotland. In the period he studied, the systems were really similar, except in England, students had to pick a specialty in their mid-teen years because they had to apply to a specific course of study for college. Whereas in Scotland, students could, if they wanted to, keep sampling things throughout college if they wanted. And the economist's question was, who tends to win the trade-off, the early or the late specializers? And what he saw was that the early specializers, in fact, jump out to an income lead because they have more domain-specific skills. The late specializers get to try more different things. They learn more about their own interests and abilities. And when they do pick, they have higher match quality, which is a term economists use to describe the degree of fit between one's interests and abilities in the work that they do. And so they have higher match quality when they do pick. So they have higher growth rates. By six years out, they flew past the early specializers. Meanwhile, the early specializers started leaving their career tracks in much higher numbers, despite having more disincentive from doing so, essentially because they were made to choose so early that they more often made poor choices. So the late specializers sort of lost in the short term, but won big in the long run. And now seeing this pattern yet again made me wonder about the developmental backgrounds of people whose work I had most admired. And I started kind of digging into those. Like, for example, the musician Duke Ellington who shunned music lessons as a kid and focused on baseball and painting and drawing and only came back to music later. Or Mariam Mirzakhani, who dreamed of becoming a novelist, instead went on to become the first and so far only woman to win the Fields Medal, which is the most prestigious prize in the world in math. Or Vincent van Gogh, who had five different careers, each of which he deemed his true calling at some point, before flaming out spectacularly, and nearing the age of 30, with no accomplishments and no possessions, picked up a book for 10-year-olds called The Guide to the ABCs of Drawing and started drawing what he saw around him. That worked out okay. Claude Shannon was an electrical engineering student at the University of Michigan when he was forced to take a philosophy course to fulfill a requirement. And in the course, he learned about a century-old system of logic by which true and false statements could be coded with ones and zeros and solved like math problems. This had accomplished basically nothing except getting into philosophy courses for about 80 years. Then Shannon did an internship at a phone company and realized he could use the phone relay switches, like those ones and zeros, and code information into circuits. And that gave rise to binary code, upon which all of our digital computers rely today. As Shannon said, it just so happened nobody was familiar with these two different areas at the same time. This is my personal sort of role model, Frances Hesselbein. This is me with her. She took her first professional job at the age of 54 after a long life of volunteering. And then she soon went on to become the CEO of the Girl Scouts, which was in crisis, was hemorrhaging uh, members and, and volunteers. Society had changed in the late 60s and early 70s for girls and women, and Girl Scouts had not. Frances came in, turned the organization around, tripled minority membership, added 130,000 volunteers. These are people she paid 
in a sense of mission, not in money, turned the cookie business into a third of a billion dollars a year and changed the organization from one that was preparing girls for life in the home to one that was preparing them for jobs in math and and science. This is one of the badges that came out of her tenure. It's binary code for girls learning about computers. Frances, uh, after Girl Scouts, she, she now today works still five days a week in Manhattan at a leadership institute that she runs, and she's only 105, so who knows what she'll get up to next. Finally, my own friend and and favorite writer, Sebastian Younger. This is Sebastian harnessing the upper canopy of a pine tree. He was working as an arborist, trimming the tops of trees in his late 20s when he accidentally cut through the back of his leg with a chainsaw. He's, He's very proud of having seen his own Achilles tendon. That's like a very Sebastian kind of thing. And it gave him this idea to write about dangerous but underappreciated jobs. And two months later, he's still limping around when a fishing vessel goes missing off the coast of the city where he was living. And he decides he's going to write about commercial fishing as a dangerous but underappreciated job. And that becomes the book, The Perfect Storm. So if you've heard the phrase, A Perfect Storm, that's because Sebastian almost lopped his foot off with a chainsaw and it gave him an idea to take something bad and and turn it into something useful. All of these people who had these incredibly winding paths where they didn't see what was what was coming. Right? But we never we never hear these developmental stories. I didn't hear them even though I followed all these people's work until I really dug into it. We don't really hear about say LinkedIn's recent research on a half million members that found that the strongest predictor of who would go on to become an executive was the number of different job functions someone had worked across. But we don't usually tell someone, go work across a lot of job functions, right? We only hear sort of the Tiger Woods stories or like Mark Zuckerberg story, right? Famously dropped out of college. And he famously said, young people are just smarter. He was 22 when he said that. No, no offense at all, students, but you don't hear him saying that anymore, really. And in fact, he's the exception. Recent research from Northwestern, MIT, and the Census Bureau found that the average age of a founder of a fast-growing tech startup on the day of founding is 45. 45. But we don't hear those stories. We just hear the Zuckerberg story. Even when the work is really famous, we don't hear those stories. For example, here's someone whose work I've followed for a long time. Here he's at age six wearing a Scottish rugby kit. His mother was a tennis coach, but declined to coach him. So he tried tennis, wrestling, skiing. He wouldn't return balls normally, not, not so much into deliberate practice, so she wouldn't coach him. He, he tried some table tennis, basketball, swimming. When his coaches wanted to move him up to play with older boys, he actually declined because uh, he just wanted to talk about pro wrestling with his friends after practice. And he kept trying different sports, rugby, soccer, basketball, skiing, badminton, skateboarding, handball. Unlike Tiger, he was not focused on being the next great from an early age. In fact, when he became good enough to warrant an interview with his local newspaper, the reporter asked him what he would purchase with his first hypothetical paycheck if he ever became a professional. And the boy said, a Mercedes. And his mother was appalled by this. And she asked the reporter if she could listen to the interview recording. And the reporter obliged. And it turned out the boy had said, mehr CDs in Swiss German. He just wanted more CDs, not a Mercedes. And his mother was okay with that. So maybe with this hint, you can guess who this is. This is Roger Federer. Turned out okay. Every bit as famous as an adult as Tiger Woods. And yet, even tennis enthusiasts usually don't know anything about his developmental story, even though it's the norm, according to the science, not the exception. Why is that? Well, I think it's partly because the Tiger story is so dramatic. Like my running buddy, Malcolm Gladwell, says, when you go on YouTube and see a two-year-old on national television, it's like a human cat video, you know, you have to share it and you can't look away. 
But I think there's more to it than that. I think it's also that it feels like this tidy narrative that we can apply to anything that we want to be good at in our own lives. And I respect that, but I think it's a big mistake because it turns out that golf in many ways is kind of a uniquely horrible model of almost everything else that humans want to learn. Golf is the epitome of what the psychologist Robin Hogarth called a kind learning environment. A kind learning environment is one in which next steps and goals are given to you, rules are clear and never change, patterns repeat, feedback is quick and accurate, work next year will look like work last year. Unfortunately for our ability to extrapolate from the Polgar experiment, or from Queen's Gambit, if you will, chess is also a pretty kind learning environment. It's actually the grandmaster's advantage is largely based on knowledge of recurring patterns. So that if you haven't started studying those patterns, by age 12, the chance of reaching international master status drops from about 1 in 4 to about 1 in 55. But that's also why it's relatively so easy to automate. So if you're in an area that's really amenable to this hyper-early specialization, you may not want to be there much longer because those are the easiest areas to automate. Now, on the other end of the spectrum are what Hogarth called wicked learning environments. Now, wicked learning environments, what he meant with that terminology was was domains where the next steps and goals may not just be given to you. They may be unclear sometimes. Rules may not be clear. They may change. Patterns don't just repeat. Feedback may be delayed. It may be inaccurate. Work next year won't look like work last year. So which one of these sounds like the situation we increasingly find ourselves in? Now, both. Some of both, for sure. But increasingly, more of this one. More of this one. For example, in the last over the last 60 years, the average lifespan of a company that's listed in the S&P 500 has uh, dropped by about 70%. The the rate of change is accelerating. This has actually fundamentally changed our perception, our need to keep track of uh, interconnecting and interdisciplinary parts and to think relationally about this changing world has fundamentally changed our perception at, at a very basic level. So that when you see this diagram, the central circle on the right probably looks larger to you because your brain is drawn to the relationship of the parts in the whole. Whereas someone who hasn't been immersed in modern work with its need for relational thinking and keeping track of interconnecting parts would see correctly, by the way, that the central circles are the same size. So here we are in this, in this wicked work world, in that kind of environment, sometimes our urge to, to specialize too early and narrowly can actually backfire really badly. In fact, in, in recent research in a dozen countries that matched people for their parents' years of education their own years of education, and their national test scores. The difference was some people got career-focused training and some people got broader general education first. The pattern was those who got the focused training more likely to be hired right out of training, higher salary right away, but they end up so much less adaptable in this changing work world that when their industry is is changed, it's hard for them to find a place to fit and they win in the short term and, and lose big in the long run because they're less adaptable. So here, I think, is when we perceive complexity in the world, this, this is the path that we sort of default to our, our intuition, right? And this is the one that we're told about, and it's the easiest to sell. But we're not in a world like this. We're in a world that's more like this. And so I think we need to think about developing ourselves this way if we want to be educated about who we are, our own match quality, and where we fit in the world. Because if we don't, if we do this in a world that's like this, it can backfire quite badly. In fact, consider a famous 20-year long study of experts making predictions of geopolitical, economic, technological trends, the worst forecasters. So 20 years, over 80,000 predictions had to be made. The worst forecasters 
turned out to be the most specialized experts. Some of them actually got worse as they accumulated experience and credentials. These were people who spent their whole careers studying sort of one or two problems unique uh, and, and came to see the whole world through kind of one lens or mental model, basically. And that doesn't mean these people weren't useful for generating knowledge, but, but it created certain kind of blind spots. I think a fun kind of offshoot or, or part of that area of research has to do with experts at 22 of the world's largest banks making predictions about currency exchange rates over a decade. So here you can see from year one to year two, the actual exchange rate goes up and it's outside the entire range of all 22 forecasts from the banks. So then it goes up, it's outside the entire range again, and then it's outside the entire range again, and then it goes down, it's outside the entire range again. And then finally it's in the range, but then it's outside the range again, then they get lucky once a decade, they won't get lucky again, outside the entire range, in the range by one. What this research found was that these specialist forecasts were essentially useless because they fell prey to certain cognitive biases because they had such a narrow view that they were always chasing the recent past essentially. One of the sort of mildly entertaining but also scary findings was that there was an inverse relationship in the study between fame and accuracy. So the people you see making prognostications like on TV are often basically scientifically proven to be the worst forecasters in the world, which is uh, seems funny until you think about the implications. Um, but this isn't to say that there was nobody in this research who was good at seeing around the corner. There were people who did quite well. Sometimes they had areas of expertise, sometimes they didn't. But more important than what they thought was how they thought, how they chose to educate themselves about the questions they faced and the world around them. And the way they did that was as perspective collectors. They would go around to plenty of specialists. They needed specialists. They needed them. They would go to them for facts, not necessarily opinions, and approaches and angles and things they hadn't thought of. And they would collect those to educate themselves about all these perspectives and then synthesize those. As the researcher who led the work described these people, these so-called super forecasters, he said they have dragonfly eyes. Dragonfly's eyes are made of thousands of different lenses. Each one takes a different picture and then those are synthesized in the dragonfly's brain. And that's how he likened the way that these people think. They, they diversify their streams of information they, they build out their networks with people different from them, and they synthesize all these different facts and, and perspectives. So it's more how they think than what they think when they go about educating themselves about this complicated world around them. And they really, they even use their social media often for diversifying their input so they don't just kind of fall prey to algorithms, right? Because when you go out in the world after college, you're going to become increasingly competent at something that you're doing out in the world, which is good, which is good. But what will come with that is that you, your streams of information will become increasingly narrow unless you push back against it. It will happen naturally unless you are forcibly diversifying your, your streams of information. Even, even in really highly accomplished and technical professions, this can happen. So think, to think of one of those is medicine, right? Specialization has been both inevitable and beneficial in medicine. No doubt about it. It'd be crazy to say anything else. And yet, it has been a double-edged sword to the point where two recent Harvard-led studies found that if you are checked into a teaching hospital on the dates of a national cardiology convention with certain cardiac conditions, on the dates of a national cardiology convention, when the most esteemed specialists are away, you're less likely to die, you're less likely to die. And the researchers concluded that's because you are less likely to get an invasive procedure 
that some specialists have gotten used to doing over and over and over again, even in the face of contrary evidence that says it doesn't work in these certain scenarios. But they've gotten so used to doing it that they'll do it over and over and over and over again anyway. So it doesn't mean that we don't need those people, obviously. But that this, when they get this narrower and narrower experience, it can really be double-edged. I think we've seen some of that as well with the healthcare industry in, in the pandemic, which has done some incredibly amazing and heroic things, but also by its own admission, I think some rigidities have been exposed. So this is, this is an editor's pick article in a journal of a professional association of, of hospital physicians learning to unspecialize in the COVID-19 pandemic. And what it wrote about was how we had so many specialists who have just this tiny keyhole view of the whole healthcare delivery pipeline that when rapid change came, they were sidelined. Right? They, they, they couldn't fit in. We needed more. We had a, a surfeit of specialists and not enough generalists who understood sort of the more of the whole pipeline. And in fact, one of the recommendations here, and, and in fact, some healthcare organizations that I've been in touch with have done is taken some of their specialists and basically embedded them back with teams of generalists, de-specializing them in a sense. One, but really what it is, is once again, giving them a view of this holistic pipeline that they're part of, Right is making them educated about the pipeline of which they are a part. Because when they become really, really specialized, and this happens in every industry, you cease to be educated about the breadth of the environment that you're involved in unless you proactively seek that out. And I think there is research to back up this idea of, of this, this re-embedding or de-specializing in every industry. This is a, a network map from research on networks of teams that creatively perform and do well in times of change, okay? So these are, these are maps of teams. And everywhere you see like colors, that's repeat collaborations between people in a team, like colors next to each other. What I want to draw your attention to is this, in, in the middle, you see there are, there's movement. There's movement of colors. There are people moving between teams. This is what the researchers who study this, by the way, this is a network map of an organization that does do well creatively and in times of change that it has this movement between teams or what the researchers did this called an import-export business of ideas. You have people taking knowledge that might be well understood on one team and cross-pollinating, moving it somewhere else where suddenly it's seen as something new. And this is going on constantly so that knowledge is moving throughout the network, helping more people get this broader perspective. It reminds me of this, the, of Bill Gore, the engineer who founded the company that created Gore-Tex he modeled the company based on his observation that organizations did their most creative work in times of crisis because the disciplinary boundaries fly out the window and people start learning what they can do for their colleagues, what their colleagues can do for them, right? If, if, you, see, if you see a network map that's mostly repeat collaborations, that's not an organization that will do well in a time of rapid change. Whereas Bill Gore liked to say, real work happens in the carpool right, in these kind of informal settings where people can exchange information. And I think that's an especial, a special challenge for us to think about now, because where's the carpool right now? We don't have as much of the carpool. I think we have technological tools, though, that can allow us to systematically remake some of these opportunities. So maybe we don't have to rely on the carpool, on serendipity as much. But I do think we have to be more thoughtful about it. If we want to be educated about the systems of which we are a part, we have to diversify our information sources and run this import export business of ideas because it's not going to run itself. Now, why is that? Why is that so effective? That import export business of ideas. I want to give you one example of why. There are a lot of reasons, but one example, and and I'll give you a 
it's going to come in the form of a quiz, right? Because, you know, of course I'm going to give you a quiz. And yeah, you're definitely going to be graded on this. So, so do your best. Pretend you're a doctor and I'm your patient and I have a malignant stomach tumor. Now there's a, there's a ray, a, you know, type of focused radiation that can destroy the tumor at sufficient intensity. The problem is that that intensity, it also destroys the healthy tissue that it passes through. So you can turn the ray down. Then it won't destroy healthy tissue, but it won't destroy the tumor either. So how can you save me? Okay, while you're thinking for a minute, I'm just going to tell you a story. Pass the time. There was once a country that was occupied by a brutal dictator, and a general wanted to liberate this country. And to do that, he had to capture a fortress in the center of the country. And there were roads radiating out like spokes from this fortress, and he had plenty enough troops. The problem was the roads all had strewn with landmines. And so if he marched his troops down any one road, uh, he'd suffer a lot of casualties. So he had the idea to split up the troops in a single file line, synchronize their watches, and converge on the a fortress at the same time. And they did that and it worked and they liberated the country. Okay. You saved me yet? I'll give you one more story while you're thinking. There was once a fire in, in a small town that was in danger of spreading to um, adjacent structures, but fortunately it was near a, a lake. And so neighbors came with buckets and they were filling their buckets with water and throwing it on the fire, but it wasn't working. Then the fire chief showed up and she said, stop what you're doing. Everyone go down to the lake, fill your buckets, get in a circle. We'll arrange you in a circle around the fire and the count of three, everybody throw. And they did that and dampen the fire and then they put it out. Fire chief gets a raise. Okay, have you saved me yet? And maybe it came to you that the solution is you can arrange multiple lower intensity rays around the point where you want them to converge and, and excise the tumor. Now, this is a very truncated version of a large body of research that shows that when you face a novel problem, the number of solutions you'll come up, possible solutions you'll come up with, and, and your likelihood of solving it has a lot to do, is, is uh, strongly predicted by the number and breadth of analogies to structurally similar problems that you can come up with. And one of the predictors of that is the diversity of experiences of the people in the group who are trying to come up with them. So this is when you have a, this import-export business of ideas and you're diversifying each individual by moving them around and, and having them be both a recipient an importer and exporter of ideas, you're diversifying the individuals, you're diversifying the teams, and you end up with these teams that are much more vibrant, much more equipped, much more educated about what they can possibly do in the face of, of novel challenges. Now, I want to share with you some uh, quotes from the work of a professor named Abby Griffin, actually at the University of Utah, and, and her colleagues who studies serial innovators. Now, these are people who make repeated creative contributions to their organizations over and over, incredibly valuable. These are just descriptors that I pulled out of her and her colleagues' work of who these people are. And I hope they'll be a little bit less surprising to you than they would have been, you know, 23 minutes ago. So who are these people? They are systems thinkers. They have additional knowledge from peripheral domains. They repurpose things that are already available. They have an ability uh, to connect disparate pieces of information in new ways. Uh, they synthesize information across different sources. They appear to flit among ideas. Doesn't normally sound like a compliment, I don't think. They have a broad range of interests. They read more and more widely than their peers. Um, they have a need to learn significantly across domains, and they have a need to communicate with people with expertise outside of their own domain. Right? So, and, and Professor Griffin and her colleagues will sometimes seem like they're speaking in their work to HR professionals saying, just so you know, if you define your job too narrowly, you're going to select these people out because they are not the square peg, you know, for the square hole, so to speak. And in many cases in the work world, if, if you are um, inclined to be a serial innovator, you may have to move a lot to, to get this kind of breadth of experience 
because all of the momentum often just pushes you towards specializing more and more and more and more. And obviously that is not the path to becoming uh, one of these serial innovators. And so you have to, you have to take a path that is more difficult than the one that will, that you, you will have plenty of opportunities to take a path of least resistance as you learn about yourself, your interests and abilities, as you learn about the organizations and systems you're a part of and, and the world that you're a part of, right? That's why it's called the path of least resistance because you'll have plenty of opportunities to take it, but it isn't the one that leads to this kind of innovative performance in so-called wicked learning environments, which is the work environment that the large majority or perhaps all of you are going into. I want to zoom out for a second and, and fast forward in your careers because at some point, many of you will be involved in some way or another in setting up the systems that determine if your organizations and teams have a good import-export business of ideas going on that continues the education of people in in those teams. You'll be involved in in helping figure out how you can have that. And so I want to give an example that maybe will stick in your mind for down the road when you are part of creating these systems. And it comes from Werner von Braun, engineer who led the development of the Saturn V rocket, the rocket that first put humans on the moon. Now, von Braun the Saturn V rocket, 60 feet longer than the Statue of Liberty, pedestal included. So even if all the teams, engineering teams, were working on it at literally physically the same time, they weren't often in, in direct touch. And Von Braun realized that the knowledge they were acquiring, everyone's knowledge affected everyone else in a big way. And so he needed to connect knowledge across the organization so that everyone could learn from each other. And so he came up with what he called Monday morning notes. Monday morning notes, every Monday morning, each of his engineering team leads had to put on one sheet of paper and one only their salient issues, problems, questions, concerns, whatever. Von Braun would get them all, put handwritten notes in the margin, and then recirculate them to everyone. So everyone could see what he thought and what other people were were thinking about. So here, for example, is one where he's saying, hey, look, your conclusion, it seems that way to me too, but go see this other person's notes and then let's talk. So he's, he's inviting these multiple perspectives, like the people with dragonfly eyes, right? He's, he's courting disagreement. Here he's saying, let's pin this down. We need to know if it calls for, for follow-up and further remedies. This was his way of, of putting a pin in something and saying, hey, everybody pay attention to this. Let's get everybody to, to weigh in. Maybe somebody knows something. And this was just part of their culture at all times. Look, this is, if you look at the date up here, it's two days um, after the first humans landed on the moon. Uh, here he's saying, please see to it that they get that. He is actively connecting information across the organization. So he's, he's working as the, the importer exporter. Somebody brought up some, some information that might be useful elsewhere. And so he's make sure that they get it here. He is seeing, you can see it says major anomaly. Someone identified a big problem and he congratulates them because he wanted to be seen publicly congratulating people who brought up problems before they got so big that you couldn't do anything about them or, or that they were a bigger problem. The only thing you didn't really like was if somebody wrote nothing of significance to report. If they had nothing to add to the group knowledge, he didn't really like that or believe that. This system was part of what some researchers call differentiating the chain of communication from the chain of command. One of the crucial things to do to create an organization that educates itself, a so-called learning organization, is differentiating the chain of communication from the chain of command. When Von Braun left, Monday morning notes stayed, but they turned into a form letter for only upward communication. And this was cited. So the the chain of communication and chain of command became one and the same. And this was cited as one of the major cultural failings um, after the Challenger exploded. The chain of communication and the chain of command became the same. 
And so if you want a learning organization, you have to differentiate those and have that vibrant import-export business of ideas. And I want to zoom much farther back in, back to the individual, to you. Because as you're going out into, into the work world, and no matter what stage you are in the work world, there are huge advantages accrue to people who know how they work. Peter Drucker, perhaps the most famous management guru ever, wrote a great essay I highly recommend everyone read called Managing Oneself, where he saw how the knowledge economy would develop and that, as he put it, success would come to those who know themselves and how they work. I want to talk a little bit about a personal experience where I got to know myself and, and how I worked a little bit. Here's This is, this is me. I was in, in college when my lowered upper body weight ratio was a uh, well, better than it is now. Um, I was a walk-on 800-meter runner, you know, half-miler walk-on, obviously, meaning I wasn't good enough to get recruited. And this is my training partner, a guy named Scott, who was a blue-chip recruit. You can see him here wearing his Canada National kit. He was 20 seconds faster than I was in the 800 meters when we were both juniors in high school. That's like, you'd go like this if you saw those people on the same track. It'd be embarrassing. And, you know, so I couldn't really keep up with him, obviously. I think they paired us together in this like old tradition of you put the walk-on with the blue chip recruit. So the walk-on just like goes away. But I, I, I stayed with it. And I, I, had a, I had an advantage. I had a blessing in disguise, which was nobody needed me to perform in the short term. Didn't need me. And there was, there was a, a young coach, that, a volunteer coach. Nobody really needed him either. So we kind of paired up in a sense. And for the next year and a half or two years, I could experiment with my training. At first, I got worse didn't realize that was possible at the time, but that's what happened. And experimenting through that training, and I kept track of what worked and what didn't. This is part of what's called self-regulatory learning. So we always, you know, the phrase think and then act. Actually, a lot of psychology shows that you have to act and then think. You do stuff and then you reflect on it and figure out what worked and what didn't. And that's how you get to know your own strengths and weaknesses and skills. You have to actively reflect. So I had this period of about two years of experimentation where I could try things and see what worked and didn't, and continue triangulating better training for me. So I had this, my blessing in disguise was this allowed period of experimentation because nobody needed me to go like this. So I was allowed to go like this. And when, when I hit on training that worked better for me, I started getting faster like almost every race. And in about a minute and 52 seconds and a half mile, now I was getting pretty quick. I beat Scott for the first time. He never beat me again. I kept getting faster and he stagnated. And, and you know, our our coaches and, and teammates say, oh, I'm the walk-on, like, you know, no talent, keep getting better, so tough. And I'm like, I don't know, I, I think I was doing less work than, than he was. It was just tailored to me, what I had learned about myself. But I wasn't going to negate that flattering narrative, you know, because it led to all this cool stuff for me. Like, I got my university's award for the athlete who achieved significant athletic success in the face of unusual challenge and difficulty. My unusual challenge and difficulty just being that I stunk at first. I was so bad at first. I went to get examined by a pulmonologist and they found my results were consistent with the earliest stages of emphysema. I would assume most people that get those kinds of results uh, find a different business to be in. This is about two years before I became a university record holder, right? I had a blessing in disguise was that I had the chance to take a path, a more winding path. Now, I just want to leave you with one more thought. That process of self-regulatory learning, your need to diversify your information sources, to keep a broad view, because otherwise you, you will get narrow. Momentum will make you that way. To create learning organizations that live in and learn along with the individuals in them is something you need to do for the rest of your life. You used, we used to be in a world where you could have a discrete period of training and learning, you know, and followed by a discrete period of working. That world is gone, but there's something even more fundamental. 
It's called the end of history illusion. This is the psychological finding that at every point in life, people agree that they changed a lot based on their experiences and lessons and everything and their, how they like to spend their time, what they think they're good and bad at, what they're interested in, what kind of world they want to live in. At every point in time, we say, I changed a lot in the past, but now I'm pretty much done. And at every point in time, we are wrong. We underestimate future change in ourselves at every time point in life. Now, change does slow down. The fastest time of personality change is about 18 to your late 20s. So now for students, right, when you're probably thinking, I have to figure out what I want to be, right? That's basically like you're trying to pick for someone you don't even know yet for a world you can't conceive. So this, this process of learning about yourself, reflection on your actions has to go on your whole life. You, maybe you've heard this, if you take an art history class, this beautiful legend about Michelangelo. This is a photograph of one of his statues I took a picture of, that he would see a fully formed figure in a block of marble and just chip away to free it. Or like, like drawing a figure out of a bath of water, he saw it fully formed and just chipped away. It's a beautiful image. Totally not true. In fact, Two-thirds of everything Michelangelo touched ended up like this because he would have a different ideas as he went and, and reflect on what he was doing and what else he could do. And he would change directions and end up with not enough marble and he would abandon it. Two-thirds of everything he touched, he abandoned. And that is much more reflective of how we actually are. We're works in progress claiming to be finished. We're actually this process of testing and learning, diversifying your experiences, diversifying your information sources is one that should follow you your whole life if you want to continue to be an educated person in this world that will change around you. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is diversified and lifelong learning. We've just heard from David Epstein. After the break, we'll return with Elder David A. Bednar for Learning to Love Learning. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is diversified and lifelong learning. Next is Elder David A. Bednar, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints at the time of this address, titled Learning to Love Learning. I recall with fondness the day I graduated from BYU with my undergraduate degree. Susan and I were just a few days away from the birth of our first son. I was about to begin work on a master's degree. We were really poor. And together we looked forward with anticipation to the opportunities and challenges of the future. That graduation day for us marked a beginning rather than a conclusion. And as Sister Bednar and I review our lives and look back on that important day, We recognize and acknowledge the guiding hand and the tender mercies of the Lord. Over the course of my life, I have participated in commencement ceremonies as a student, as a parent, as a professor, as a university president, as a friend, and as a spectator. I frankly cannot recall precisely how many commencements I have attended, but it is indeed a very large number. And I readily admit that I genuinely enjoy Commencement Day on a university campus. However, my experience in commencement ceremonies has taught me a most valuable lesson. Graduates and their families care little about and rarely remember anything a commencement speaker says. (laughs) 
and I certainly believe that truth applies here today. My graduation gift to you is a shorter-than-you-probably-expect commencement message. that focuses upon the principle of learning to love learning. I want to briefly discuss the importance of learning to love learning in three aspects of our lives. Learning to love learning is central to the gospel of Jesus Christ, is vital to our ongoing spiritual and personal development, and is an absolute necessity in the world in which we do now and will yet live, serve, and work. Aspect number one, learning to love learning is central to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The overarching purpose of Heavenly Father's great plan of happiness is to provide His Spirit children with opportunities to learn. The atonement of Jesus Christ and the moral agency afforded to all of Heavenly Father's children through the infinite and eternal sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ are divinely designed to facilitate our learning. The Savior said, Learn of me and listen to my words and walk in the meekness of my spirit, and you shall have peace in me. We are assisted in learning of and listening to the words of Christ by the Holy Ghost, even the third member of the Godhead. The Holy Ghost reveals and witnesses the truth of all things, and brings all things to our remembrance. The Holy Ghost is the teacher who kindles within us an abiding love of and for learning. We repeatedly are admonished in the revelations to ask in faith when we lack knowledge, to seek learning even by study and also by faith, and to inquire of God that we might receive instruction from His Spirit and know mysteries which are great and marvelous. The Restored Church of Jesus Christ exists today to help individuals and families learn about and receive the blessings of the Savior's gospel. A hierarchy of importance exists among the things you and I can learn. Indeed, all learning is not equally important. The Apostle Paul taught this truth in his second epistle to Timothy, as he warned that in the latter days many people would be ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Some facts are helpful or interesting to know. Some knowledge is useful to learn and apply. But gospel truths are essential for us to understand and live if we are to become what our Heavenly Father yearns for us to become. The type of learning I am attempting to describe is not merely the accumulation of data and facts and frameworks. Rather, it is acquiring and applying knowledge for righteousness. The revelations teach us the glory of God is intelligence. We typically may think the word intelligence in this scripture denotes innate cognitive ability or a particular gift for academic work. In this verse, however, one of the meanings of intelligence is the application of the knowledge we obtain for righteousness. As President David O. McKay taught, the learning for which the Church stands is the application of knowledge to the development of a noble and godlike character. 
You and I are here upon the earth to prepare for eternity, to learn how to learn, to learn things that are temporally important and eternally essential, and to assist others in learning wisdom and truth, understanding who we are, where we came from, and why we are upon the earth places upon each of us a great responsibility to both learn how to learn and to learn to love learning. Aspect number two, learning to love learning is vital to our ongoing spiritual and personal development. Brigham Young, the man for whom this university appropriately is named, was a learner. Although President Young had only 11 days of formal schooling, He understood the need for learning both the wisdom of God and the things of the world. He was a furniture maker, a missionary, a colonizer, a governor, and the Lord's prophet. I marvel at both the way Brigham Young learned and how much he learned. He never ceased learning from the revelations of the Lord, from the scriptures, and from good books. Perhaps President Young was such a consummate learner precisely because he was not constrained unduly by the arbitrary boundaries so often imposed through some of the structures and processes of formal education. He clearly learned to love learning. He clearly learned how to learn. And he ultimately became a powerful disciple and teacher precisely because he first was an effective learner. President Brigham Young repeatedly taught that the object of our mortal existence is to learn. The following statements from President Young emphasize this truth. Statement number one. The religion embraced by the Latter-day Saints, if only slightly understood, prompts them to search diligently after knowledge. There is no other people in existence more eager to see, hear, learn, and understand truth. Statement number two, put forth your ability to learn as fast as you can and gather all the strength of mind and principle of faith you possibly can, and then distribute your your knowledge to the people. Statement number three, this work is a progressive work. This doctrine that is taught the Latter-day Saints in its nature is exalting, increasing, expanding, and extending broader and broader until we can know as we are known and see as we are seen. Statement number four, we are in the school of mortality and keep learning, and we do not expect to cease learning while we live on earth. And when we pass through the veil, we expect still to continue to learn and increase our fund of information. That may appear a strange idea to some, but it is for the plain and simple reason that we are not capacitated to receive all knowledge at once. We must, therefore, receive a little here and a little there. And finally, statement number five. We might ask, when shall we cease to learn? I will give you my opinion about it. Never. Never. Brigham Young's acceptance of and conversion to the gospel of Jesus Christ fueled his unceasing curiosity and love of learning. The ongoing spiritual and personal development evidenced in the life of Brigham Young is a worthy example for you and for me. Aspect number three. 
Learning to love learning is an absolute necessity in the world in which we do now and will yet live, serve, and work. Many of you already have posed for graduation pictures with family and friends by the landmark sign located at the entrance to this campus on which the following motto is found, Enter to learn, go forth to serve. This expression certainly does not imply that everything necessary for a lifetime of meaningful service can or will be obtained during a few short years on this campus. Rather, the spirit of this statement is that students come to receive foundational instruction about learning how to learn and learning to love learning. Furthermore, your desire and capacity to serve have not been put on hold during your years of intellectual exploration and development on this campus. As students, you have served in many and in meaningful ways. Thus, you entered to both learn and to serve. May I respectfully suggest an addition to this well-known motto that is too long to put on the sign but is important for us to remember. Enter to learn to love learning and to serve. Go forth to continue learning and serving. Truly, you entered Brigham Young University to learn to love learning and serving. As you now depart from this campus to pursue family, educational, and career opportunities, you are going forth to continue both learning and serving. Today, as we bask in the satisfaction of worthy accomplishment, each of us certainly realizes that academic assignments, test scores, and a cumulative GPA have not produced a final and polished product. Rather, you have only started to put in place a foundation of learning upon which you can build forever. Much of the data and knowledge obtained through a specific major or program of study rapidly may become outdated and obsolete. The particular topics investigated and learned are not nearly as important as what has been learned about learning. As we press forward in life, spiritually, interpersonally, and professionally, no book of answers is readily available with guidelines and solutions to the great challenges of life. All we have is our capacity to learn and our love of and for learning. I believe a basic test exists of our capacity to learn and of our love of learning. Here is the test. When you and I do not know what to do or how to proceed to achieve a particular outcome, when we are confronted with a problem that has no clear answer and no prescribed pattern for resolution, can we discern and learn what to do? This was precisely the situation in which Nephi found himself as he was commanded to build a ship. And it came to pass that the Lord spake unto me, saying, Thou shalt construct a ship after the manner which I shall show thee, that I may carry thy people across these waters. Now, brothers and sisters, Nephi was not a sailor. He had been reared in Jerusalem, an inland city, rather than along the borders of the Mediterranean Sea. It seems unlikely that he knew much about or had experience with the tools and skills necessary to build a ship. 
he may not ever previously have seen an ocean-going vessel. In essence, then, Nephi was commanded and instructed to build something he had never built before in order to go someplace he had never been before. Now, I doubt any of us will be commanded to build a ship, as was Nephi. But each of us will have our spiritual and learning capabilities tested over and over and over again. The ever-accelerating rate of change in our modern world will force us into uncharted territory and demanding circumstances. For example, the U.S. Department of Labor estimates that today's graduates will have between 10 and 14 different jobs by the time you are 38 years old. And the necessary skills to perform successfully in each job assignment will constantly change and evolve. For much of my career as a professor, there was no internet, no Google, no Wikipedia, no YouTube, and no telepresence. The internet only began to be widely used by the general public in the mid-1990s. Prior to that time, no courses were taught about and no majors were offered in internet-related subjects. I remember teaching myself HTML and experimenting with ways student learning could be enhanced through this new and emerging technology. In contrast, most of you have never known and cannot possibly imagine a world without the Internet and its associated technologies. Now, I know I am revealing my advanced age, but the change from my no-Internet world to your Internet-only world has occurred within the last 15 years. Can we even begin to imagine how much things will continue to change during the next 15 years? Because vast amounts of information are so readily available, and sophisticated technologies make possible widespread and even global collaboration, we may be prone to put our trust in the arm of flesh as we grapple with complex challenges and problems. We perhaps might be inclined to rely primarily upon our individual and collective capacity to reason, to innovate, to plan, and to execute. Certainly we must use our God-given abilities to the fullest, employ our best efforts, and exercise appropriate judgment as we encounter the opportunities of life. But, brothers and sisters, our mortal best is never enough. President Brigham Young testified that we are never left alone or on our own. Quote, My knowledge is, if you will follow the teachings of Jesus Christ and His apostles, as recorded in the New Testament, every man and woman will be put in possession of the Holy Ghost. They will know things that are, that will be, and that have been. They will understand things in heaven, things on the earth, and things under the earth, things of time and things of eternity, according to their several callings and capacities. Close quote. I congratulate you on this special day. I pray you have been blessed with a deep and enduring love of learning. 
Learning to love learning equips us for an ever-changing and unpredictable future. Knowing how to learn prepares us to discern and act upon opportunities that others may not readily recognize. I am confident you will pass the test of learning what to do when you do not know what to do or how to proceed. Now, as our sons left our home for college to serve as missionaries and to pursue their personal and professional dreams, Sister Bednar and I shared with them the following counsel. Remember that you represent the Savior. Remember that you represent your family. Remember that you represent the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And as you now graduate from Brigham Young University, may I add one more item to the list for you today. Remember that you represent Brigham Young University. Today you become alumni of BYU and have the responsibility to help the world better understand who we are and what we do at this remarkable institution. How you live, what you do, and what you become ultimately define this university. May the Lord bless you as you always remember Him and serve Him with faith and with diligence. I declare my sacred witness as to the living reality of God the Eternal Father, of our Savior and Redeemer, even the Lord Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Ghost. I also declare my witness that the gospel of Jesus Christ has been restored to the earth in its fullness in these latter days. I pray your love of learning will grow ever deeper, ever richer, and ever more complete. I invoke the blessings of heaven upon you, that that prayer may be answered in your individual life and in your family. In the sacred name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was diversified and lifelong learning with thoughts from David Epstein and Elder David A. Bednar. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.